0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field.
1: Welcome to our April series on medical malpractice. We'd like to thank Ryan McHerson for suggesting this topic. Before we get started, we are going to link in the show notes to an article by Medscape, which is their malpractice report from 2017, which is the most recent report that they have published. The numbers are quite sobering, and it's important to keep in mind as trainees and junior faculty as we enter the practicing workforce. More than 19,000 surgeons and physicians were surveyed in over 27 specialties. And here are the numbers. 85% of the surgeons who were surveyed had been sued. 31% were for complications and 28% for delayed diagnosis. 58% of the surveyed respondents said that they were very surprised about the litigation and 89% did not think it was warranted. 33% said that they spent more than 40 hours on defense but 33% also did say that they spent zero time in court. For 39% of the respondents, the lawsuit took one to two years and 30% settled before trial. 96% of plaintiffs got monetary compensation. However, 62% of the surveyed physicians did think that the outcome was fair. 26% said that they lost trust in their patients after going through this process of litigation, and 33% said that it did have a negative effect on their career. Numbers between males and females in the respondents was very similar, so we don't need to go into detail on that. 22% said that a lesson they learned was that they need to chart better. 83% did not think that an apology would have made a difference, and 45% said that the threat of litigation was on their minds most or all of the time.
0: That is fascinating, Megana. We're excited to dive into the reasons behind some of those numbers. First up, we interview Michelle Atour, a malpractice lawyer who runs through all the burning questions we have about malpractice. We then talk about the systemic failures and how they can lead to malpractice in a discussion about Dr. Death with uh, creator, uh, podcast creator Laura Beal. After that, we hear the surgery perspective from Dr. Ruth Bush, who also has a Juris Doctorate, and Dr. Rolando Princetti. Uh, who provides an international uh, perspective on malpractice. Mr. Dan Kevitt, another malpractice lawyer, will then provide some case examples that he has encountered over the years. And finally, we'll end the series with uh, Annals of Surgery Journal Club featuring Dr. Lillimo discussing a review of malpractice claims after lap coles. We hope you enjoy our malpractice series this month.
1: Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We have as our guest, Michelle Ader. Ms. Ader heads the medical malpractice group at Friday Eldridge and Clark. She dedicates her practice to defending physicians and hospitals and litigation. None of the content of this episode constitutes her legal advice to our listeners. Hopefully, we're going to gather some great information from her. Please do speak with an attorney for any legal questions that you may have. Thank you for joining us, Ms. Ader. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. We like to start all of our podcast episodes getting to know our guests a little bit more. So, can you tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, and what what brought you into the position you are today as a medical medical malpractice lawyer?
2: Sure. So, as a medical malpractice lawyer, you know, just like doctors, we all have our individual strengths and weaknesses and training, and mine is actually in trial work. So, I'm not the lawyer that you would talk to for you know Medicare compliance, HIPAA compliance, anything like that. Our regulatory lawyers handle that. I'm a lawyer who works with doctors and nurses to get them ready to go to court. And then I try the case uh, if they're charged with malpractice and I defend them in those cases. Uh, I'm always on the doctor's side in this particular kind of work. We sort of draw our lines. And uh, so that's, that's my practice every day is meeting with doctors and nurses and Uh, Representing them to trials.
1: So let's just jump straight into our discussion of malpractice. We have a bunch of questions here that we're going to go through and and gain your insight from the legal standpoint. So first of all, I'd like to know from you, having done this for a while, what have you seen has changed the most over time? that has made the medical field more litigious, or you can say that it hasn't changed, that it isn't more litigious than it used to be, say 10 years back, but that's something that we've kind of noticed ourselves.
2: You know, I don't know if it's any more litigious. I know it certainly feels that way. And I think there are a couple of trends that I see that have made it, I think, more difficult. It's not more litigious, it's more difficult to defend. Um, one of them is EMR. As I'm sure you know, the electronic medical record has made things very different in the way that people are documenting. There aren't uh, a lot of ways sometimes for doctors to document their thought processes like they used to. And so some of the subtleties, I think, are being missed. And we see that turning up in lawsuits more and more often now. I think the second thing that I've seen a lot is that You know, we've moved away from, in some cases, not all cases, but that personal relationship between the doctor and the patient. Uh, You know, we have more uh, sort of team-managed care. We have hospitalists taking care of patients after surgery. And so we don't have that face-to-face contact, I think, that patients used to have with their surgeons. And with that, sometimes when things don't go as expected, patients don't get the answers they need and they get upset. And a lot of times those end up in lawsuits. And so those are just some trends that I've seen in my practice uh, where things are changing now.
0: That, that's actually a really good point that you bring up, because I've noticed that physicians who have major complications or issues, they tend to have better relationships with their patients and they don't end up in legal, legal issues. Have you ever seen any studies or anything showing that better bite manner or more time spent with a patient leads to uh, less malpractice suits?
2: You know, I haven't seen any studies on that, but certainly anecdotally in my practice, I can say that's almost universally true. Patients who feel abandoned after there is some type of unexpected outcome are more likely to sue. One statistic I have seen that I think is really interesting is most lawsuits are brought after a patient speaks to a subsequent caregiver and the subsequent caregiver encourages them to obtain a lawyer. So I think a lot of times doctors think that these lawsuits are spurned by TV ads or mailings, and sometimes that's true, but I take a lot of depositions of a lot of patients, and I always ask them, why did you decide to bring this lawsuit? And my experience would be pretty consistent with the literature I've seen where uh, patients tell me a nurse, another doctor, a family friend who's in the medical profession recommended that they get a lawyer after they had some kind of mishap. And most of the time they don't understand why. You know, they don't they don't know what happened, they don't know why it happened, but they're upset, they've had a bad outcome, they're not getting the answers that they want, and so they file suit. Now that's not always true. Obviously there are some patients who just have a catastrophic outcome and they can't pay their bills and they can't work and things like that and and those people are uh, likely to file suit for economic reasons, but a lot of people are just encouraged to do so by people that they think know more than they do about the system and how things are supposed to work.
1: I wanted to follow up with you about the EMR that you brought up. One thing that's kind of, I think, newer is this idea of transparency where patients can actually see their lab reports and other things in real time. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've had much experience with this yet from the litigation standpoint, but have you noticed that that's affected, you know, how the patients are reacting to complications?
2: You know, I haven't seen patients complain about that. The only litigation that I've seen so far on that issue is where patients perceive something to be incorrect and they want to have it corrected. You know, sometimes they're right. You know, sometimes an allergy is written down incorrectly or their past surgical history may be missing something or have something written down that's incorrect. A lot of times what I'm seeing now is patients don't just don't like what the doctor is saying, and they want to change that. And so we've had to address, you know, what do you do when the patient (laughs) disagrees with you, but you still think you're right? And so that's kind of been an interesting take on that. But I don't know that it necessarily changed the care in real time, at least as far
1: as I've seen. So are those actual suits that have come about because they want the correction in their chart? Or is it just kind of a discussion with a lawyer that hasn't really gone much further than that?
2: So far, not to a lawsuit. We've, we've had communications with lawyers and you know, we've gotten back and forth like that. But so far, we've been able to resolve things between the doctor and the patient.
0: I, I really like to walk into, you know, I'm, I'm still, I'm a uh, last year resident out here in Seattle you know, I'm starting to think about this more, you know, as the, I start to see, you know, people who graduated prior before me that are in, you know, and didn't oppose and all these other things. But I really like to walk through you. What would, if you were going to get sued, hopefully none of us ever get there, which you know, statistically that's not possible. If uh, if we're going to get sued, what would you expect? What's the process of going about that? Just so it's not so inf- unfamiliar to everybody.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great question. The um, Because it is so unfamiliar to most doctors, this just isn't something that you want to think about. And so a lot of people don't until they're forced to, I think, because it's really emotional. I think that's one thing I've learned in working with doctors for as long as I have. You know, you would think that, like you said, it's statistical that at some point, most likely you're going to be involved in a lawsuit at some point. But what I found is it's very difficult for people who are caring like doctors are and smart and Uh, When something goes wrong, it's really hard for them to deal with. And so I think the first thing that happens is when there is an unexpected outcome, when there's a bad outcome, it's really important to talk with somebody who's been through that before, uh, because it's going to be a little bit different in different jurisdictions. But at least in um, Arkansas, where I practice, there's a two-year statute of limitations, which means that for the first two years, uh, chances are you're not going to hear anything from anyone about the legal process. But that doesn't mean you're not worried about it, you're not concerned about it, you're not thinking about it. So, uh, you know, for anybody out there who's worried about something like that, I would recommend that they reach out to uh, the risk management person in their hospital, uh, your insurer, your lawyer, somebody that you can talk to about that. Because that's the first thing that happens, and that's before, typically before I even know that there's a case. Uh, And again, that process takes a couple of years. So it's a while before that gets started. If you talk to friends, if you talk to family members, if you talk to partners, all of that is going to come up later in the lawsuit. So uh, talking to a lawyer is a good idea if you have a concern because those discussions are privileged. So after the two years, the first thing that uh, if a doctor is going to be sued, but usually the first time that they know about it is when they're served with process papers. So a process server will show up at your office, at your home, at the hospital, and hand you papers to let you know that you've been uh, invited to participate in a lawsuit. Uh, In some jurisdictions, you can get those by mail too, um, typically by, you know, kind of certified mail or something that proves that you get it. Once you receive that lawsuit, there's usually two things, sometimes three things in the envelope. There's a complaint, which outlines the complaint against you. There's a summons that tells you you have to come to court, and sometimes there's a written discovery in there that will tell you, or that will ask you questions. You know, give us copies of the medical records. Where did you go to medical school? And ask you questions about yourself that you have to answer. The important thing with all that is, in most jurisdictions, you have 20 or 30 days to answer that complaint. Uh, if you don't answer it in time, you're in default, which is sort of like a forfeit, and you can be held liable just as if you admitted responsibility. And so it's really important to, to answer on time.
0: Is that a written process where you have to answer as like a, some form of a memo or something back to them or a document?
2: Yes, it is. And it's actually a very formal process because it's your entry into the lawsuit. So this is something you would absolutely have to have a lawyer help you with um, because there's certain rules of pleading of admitting things and denying things that are hyper technical. And so this is one of the times that you're going to have to have help no matter, no matter what your type of practice is. And so during that 30 days, 20 days or 30 days, you're going to have to get a lawyer. The lawyer is going to have to read through the medical records and get up to speed on everything. You're going to need to meet with the lawyer and then the lawyer will file the answer for you. And that's, that's the first notice you have of the case typically. Then the next step after you've entered your appearance in court is to basically exchange written discovery, these written answers, questions and answers that I talked about. So, When I'm representing a doctor, the first thing I do is I'll answer the complaint, like we talked about. And then I will serve on the other side written interrogatories and requests for production of documents that requires them to provide to me the basis for their lawsuit. So they're going to have to give me their medical records. They're going to have from the provider. They're going to have to give me any subsequent medical records. They have to give me medical bills, uh, information about their employment, you know, just whatever might be at issue in the case. And then they propound those things to us as well. And so for the doc- on the doctor's side, we're going to have to produce medical records. We'll typically produce a CV, answer information about background uh, things. Sometimes hospital policies come into play, uh, things like that. And that normally takes, believe it or not, since we have to get medical records from a lot of different providers, uh, you know, they get 30 days each typically. So it may be six months or so while we're trying to gather the documentation that we need to review the case. Once we feel like we have all of that, which would be all the records, x-rays if we have them, uh, you know, just anything that may be pertinent to the review, then we hire experts to review the information for us. So, you know, that may mean we have one expert. It may mean we have 10, depending on the case, you know, depending how many specialties are involved and how many uh, consults we need on different issues in the case. And one of the, I mean, I hate to say it, but one of the most fun things about my practice is all of the doctors that I represent are Um, typically in my home state, but the experts that I get to work with are the experts in their field, and they're all over the country, Uh, and it's really rewarding as a lawyer to get to meet some of these people. It's it's a lot of fun to do that, so we'll get the records to those uh, experts. We'll go out and meet with them, and I always tell our expert witnesses that I want a truthful, unbiased review Mm -hmm. of what they see, I don't want somebody to tell me I have a good case and I don't want them to tell me I have a bad case. I want them to tell me, you know, whether whether the case has merit or not from the patient's perspective, what the strengths are, what the weaknesses are for both sides. And we get pretty far into the weeds in a lot of these cases. You know, I'll do my own medical research. They'll do their medical research. We'll look at it and hopefully come up with the answer. And. For most cases, and it's because I think this is the right thing to do, if the physician erred, and we can talk a little bit about what that means from a malpractice standpoint if you want to, but if the physician truly erred and it really caused harm to someone, I typically recommend that they settle that case, um, because that's why you have malpractice insurance and it's the right thing to do. Uh, if they didn't err and didn't cause harm, I'm a big big proponent of taking those cases to trial because you don't want to pay uh, what I would call a nuisance case uh, because I just don't think it's right. You know, you you shouldn't, you should defend yourself when it's appropriate to do so. So we analyze the case. We decide whether we think it's a good case or not. Somewhere in there, we also take depositions, which I think, um, John, you mentioned earlier that you'd heard people talking about And that's just where the lawyer gets to ask questions of the party from the other side. So uh, for me, I'll go take the deposition of the patient, the patient's family members who may have been around, people who are taking care of them now if it's kind of a a more catastrophic situation. Um, And they'll take the deposition of the doctor, you know, any other doctors that may have consulted on the case, nurses who were around at the time. And uh, once that's all done, then we'll go take the depositions of the experts. Once all that is done, then we usually sit down together again and talk. We kind of have our our own kind of informed consent discussion with the doctor then and talk about the pros and cons of going to trial, uh, what the risks are, why we might want to do that, why we might not. And then we decide if we want to take it to trial or not. And, um, you know, and then if, if appropriate, we go and we defend it in court. And so that, you know, it takes, People are surprised how long that takes, but there's a lot to be done in there. And, uh, you know, maybe a couple of years longer than the statute of limitations before a case gets to trial. You know, so maybe four or five years after the care has been provided that it finally gets into court.
1: I actually would like you to um, go into defining, I guess, what it means for a physician to err because, I think for most of us, it seems kind of cut and dry, like either the physician made a mistake or it was a complication that wasn't necessarily the physician's fault, maybe some patient factor. So, you know, can you give some clarity to what I'm imagining is kind of difficult to strictly define? Sure. Um,
2: So, one of the things that we learn as very first-year law students, we, we take a torts class, and medical negligence is pretty much the same as other negligence. You have to show what the standard of care is, number one. Number two is that someone failed to comply with the standard. Number three is that that is what caused the injury, and then you have to show damages. So those four things are common to all court claims in America. So what that means in the context of a medical malpractice case is this. So the standard of care is... Defined differently in different states, but for the most part, it's what a reasonable surgeon or physician would do in similar circumstances. That takes into account a lot of things. It takes into account uh, the type of practice that the surgeon is in, the specialty, uh, the resources available in the community. You know, obviously, the standard of care may be a little bit different if you're in a small rural hospital somewhere and you're the only one on call, uh, than if you're in a large teaching facility somewhere. And so all of those things go to define what the standard of care is. So that's the first thing we ask the experts to do for us. You know, what's the standard here? What's required? And the standard of care may encompass different choices. So, you know, for example, in a surgical context, you know, is it okay to watch and wait for a while? Do we do medical management for a while? Do we operate tonight? You know, as long as the physician is making a reasonable choice out of the realm of acceptable choices, then whatever he or she is doing is within the standard of care. It's only when the surgeon operates outside of what those reasonable choices are that he or she is not practicing within the standard of care. So, for example, if a a doctor decided you know, I'm going to wait until tomorrow to operate. Let's see how the patient does overnight. You know, as long as that's a reasonable choice, it shouldn't be outcome determinative as to whether this was malpractice or not. Um, you know, a bad outcome is not the same thing as a bad doctor. And I've said that a million times because that's true. I mean, we all know that um, the best surgeons in the world can have bad outcomes sometimes. And as long as they're making reasonable choices and they can back that up, when it's not malpractice. Um, and then we have to show, which which seems obvious and, and logical, but sometimes it's important to point out to juries that it ha- the injury has to have been caused by the malpractice and not something else. So that's the proximate cause prong of, of what we have. So you may have a bad outcome, but if it's unrelated to something that someone did wrong, um, then, then it's not malpractice.
0: So another question that kind of falls up around that, and this is kind of applicable to those in academic centers, but is working with residents. How do they play into this entire process? And I guess is the amount of autonomy that the surgeon gives the resident, is that come into question a lot in court?
2: So we, you know, it's unfortunately one of the features of being a resident, I think, is you get sucked into a lot of lawsuits that you really don't have anything to do with. it's true, you know, I I talk to a lot of doctors, and I'll say, well, tell me about how many times you've been sued, and you know, they'll say, I was sued eight times when I was a resident, but I really don't know why, because I really wasn't that involved in the care, and I wasn't making the decisions anyway. It doesn't mean that you're not going to be sued, but typically, you're going to be dropped out of the case, uh, because the plaintiff eventually will figure out that you really were not the person making the decisions. Now, that being said, you do have some responsibility that's commiserate with your station in all of this. And so depending on how much responsibility you have, you're going to have, you know, reciprocal liability potentially for whatever you're doing. So the more authority you have, uh, the more liability you have. That's just kind of the nature of it.
0: And I, I have a follow up. So a lot of these, you know, complications and things like that happen I mean, maybe not a lot, but from the outside of the kind of the surgical, and not in the operating room, you're not taking care of the the, the additional post-operative care. What if there's a nursing error or like something that happens on the floor of the hospital? And you know, we're always told like you're you're that's your patient, you're in charge of this patient, like this is you're you're take you take responsibility for everything. But how much of those errors and everything can be held against you as a surgeon?
2: I hate to tell you this, but that part of it, that's true. I mean, that that really isn't a miss because um, the surgeon is going to be responsible for the surgical patient. And what's interesting is it's not often an intraoperative complication that ends up in a lawsuit. Now, we do have some, obviously. We have, um, I would say, we see a fair amount of bowel injuries. We see a fair amount of ureter injuries in OBGYN cases. Those, those types of things we can typically defend as long as the complication is recognized interoperatively, you know, and so, so if that happens and it's fixed and the patient is informed, then those cases are pretty universally defensible. Uh, If there's a bowel injury or a ureter injury and the patient is not monitored carefully after the surgery, and gets really, really sick, you know, if you end up with a patient who is, gets sepsis or something like that, then everyone who's involved in that patient's care is going to be a defendant in a lawsuit because the nurses will be criticized for not reporting, for observing and reporting carefully enough. The surgeon's obviously going to have some issues with the int- not recognizing the complication interoperatively. And a lot of times, even some of the downstream care providers are sued. You know, if you end up having to consult um, someone else, like nephrology or something like that, depending on how sick the patient gets. Uh, and le- if those doctors don't handle the complication well, they can be sued too. And so um, the truth is, when we talk about practicing as a team, you really, you really do. And so, you know, one of the, I think. I think one of the ways that you all uh, got my information is I think you talked to Dr. Mazel at um, the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. He teaches a business and medicine class there that's become really popular. And I give a talk to that group each year that's just sort of my own, out of my own practice experience. And it's kind of a list of things I wish I could tell my clients before they're my clients, you know, because obviously when I get involved in a case, it's because something's already gone wrong and a lawsuit's already been filed. And we're like, I said, maybe two years down the road, but I have this kind of list of things that I want to tell new doctors or experienced doctors before they're ever involved in a lawsuit, because I feel like if if I could give you some of this information ahead of time, I could keep you from beating me later. It's sort of a selfish thing, I guess. But um, there are some things that you can do to really decrease your likelihood of being sued. And one of them is talking to the patient, just like we just talked about, um, explaining what's going on to them. But the other one, uh, which is what got me on this topic, is making sure that whoever's following your patients after a surgery are really doing that. They are really paying attention. They are truthfully taking the vital signs like they're supposed to. They're truthfully checking the eyes of those and those things that get really boring and really mundane for nurses, but can make all the difference in the world. And that they're not afraid to call you. You know, I talked, I defend nurses too. And I'll say, why on earth didn't you call? You know, why why did this go so long? In in many instances, more like because I am terrified to make that phone call. And so, you know, that I think as a surgeon, one thing that you can do is encourage your team to talk and to work together, even on those things that may not seem important. Most of the things that I see in my practice are not people. Doing outlandish things. It is, it's when the outlier occurs. You know, we do surgery after surgery after surgery. You know, how many times do people do cholecystectomies or appendectomies? You know, you may do 15 a day. And the nurses get used to your practice patterns and they see how you do things and what you expect of them. And you know, we have some really, really good nurses, but just like me, and just like everyone else, they get used to seeing the same things over and over. And it's when something unexpected happens that, and it's not caught, that we end up in lawsuits because we get in our routines and it, and we forget why we're in those routines. You know, it's it's like timeouts. When those got started, everybody thought they were kind of ridiculous, and we saw wrong-sided surgery go way down, but then we all got kind of used to it, and now we just sort of run through it pretty quick, and I've started to see a little uptick on things that if we'd really stopped and done a really good time out um, in surgery, we probably could have prevented some things.
0: I think I'm going to listen to that last clip probably like 10 more times because this is, (laughs) and I'm probably going to share that with so many other people. I mean, we have a lot of, there's conflicting interests within within hospitals of taking care of patients post-operatively. And hospitals like to spread patients around to other floors and to have more nursing experiences. But we always fight to have the same patients, same same pa- same nurses take care of the patients that are used to doing that all the time. Because they know when to see something wrong and know when to call. And that is something that's so important. And I'm going to share that so many times. You have no idea. So, <laughs> but uh, the, the the question, I the next question I really have is what types of things, and I know there's probably a broad spectrum and it, it varies, but mostly for surgeons, what types of things would you get your license taken away for, or, you know, get referred to the database and all these other things? What, what, what kind of complications or what types of uh, yeah. errors do you see?
2: The, honestly, the two things, That will get a doctor's license taken away, have to deal with drug use and prescribing patterns, number one. And number two, I mean, I hate to say it, but inappropriate relationships with patients. Those are the two things that I see doctors absolutely losing their license over uh, without a lot of hesitation from the medical boards. Anything else other than repeated incompetence is probably not going to make you lose your license. And those are the, those are the doctors who probably need to go back for some more retraining, you know, because they're having a, um, repeated same complication over and over. Uh, a lot of times the medical boards will send them back for additional training and right? it's probably a good thing. I haven't seen anyone lose their license over that though. Now the data bank is a different question because anytime you settle a case for money, or anytime you lose a case at trial, that gets reported to the national practitioner data. Bank. Um, the people that can see that, the public can't see that, but credentialing agencies can. So when you apply for credentials in a hospital, uh, they can see that. And then insurers can see it, too. So if you have a lot of hits on your data bank report, it makes your insurance premiums go up.
0: Okay. So <laughs> that, that is the main issue with all that, then, is that it's, the, it's more becomes a professionalism issue where... You can, you know, they might look at that when you're looking at new jobs or when um, insurance companies may adjust your malpractice rates appropriately, I guess. So that's that the main issues that come to happen to getting referred to the data bank.
2: Yeah. And that's that's really the issue. So I don't see a lot of doctors lose their license. I mean, there are some along the way, but not very many. What happens is they get so many hits that they just can't afford to practice anymore because they can't afford the insurance.
1: That actually moves us in very nicely to uh, malpractice insurance. And the questions we have about that are, like, what is the actual cost of malpractice insurance and and how should you uh, protect yourself, especially these are when we go out into practice and we have to do it on our own and it's not some group rate or something with our hospital. And then also with the malpractice risk assessment, is that something that we should be doing and what is that?
2: As far as malpractice insurance goes, it's going to vary a lot from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, because you know some places have tort reform and there are caps on malpractice cases. So if you're sued and there's a damages cap, you know obviously you don't need more insurance than whatever the cap is. In other ju- jurisdictions, like the one that I'm in, we don't have any caps, and so. You know, a malpractice verdict can be between anywhere between zero and infinity, you know, and so there are experts in whatever jurisdiction you're in who can tell you, based on the type of practice that you're in, how much insurance coverage you need. Because if you're, you know, doing family practice in a particular community, it's going to be very different. Then, if you're doing, you know, a complicated surgical practice somewhere. It's also going to make a difference if you're in private practice or if you're in an academic setting. And so the insurers that cover um, doctors and hospitals in the different jurisdictions, they know how much um, you're going to need in your particular area. And so that's who I would listen to for advice on that.
1: You said, you know, it it makes a difference if you're in private practice versus academic. And I was actually curious, even with uh, not just insurance, but litigation in general, is is there a difference between the two or are they all kind of treated the same?
2: Under the law, they're treated the same, except um, in some jurisdictions, and ours is one of them, to encourage people to stay in academic medicine, basically, there are limits on how you can be sued. and so. A lot of times, you need less insurance coverage because you're immune from some types
0: of suit if you practice in an academic setting.
2: And it's a real perk, honestly, of, of an academic practice in some places.
0: The next thing is, uh, I guess we kind of we kind of briefed about this already, but what are the the most common like rumors and misconceptions that you see surgeons have understanding about malpractice I, I, from your experience? I guess
2: uh, I would I would say it probably has to do with documentation. I think in um, medical school, from what I understand, people are told not documented, not done. And so, which of course isn't right. I mean, we know everybody does a lot of things at work every day that we don't write down. But I think there's a misconception that more documentation is better or less documentation is better. I've heard both. Uh, And I don't really think that that's correct. I think it's the right documentation that's important, you know, kind of going back to what we talked about with EMRs earlier, it's, you can, you can check a lot of boxes and not tell the story of what's going on with the patient. Or you may write one or two sentences and say it all. And so it it really depends, you know, I can't give you a particular example really without, without knowing the case, but I would say it's important to document your observations your thought process, what you're doing about it. And in particular, in today's world, any trends with the patient? And I would really encourage you to think about the trend question, because I think that's one thing that may be lost in some of what we talked about earlier with more of a team approach to care and with electronic medical records. You know, if you have one person seeing seeing to the patient every 12 hours, every 24 hours, that human being may spot a trend in that patient that's easier to miss if you have a lot of different eyes on the patient. You know, it, it it's sort of, you would think intuitive that you have more people looking at the patient. So you're going to catch more, I guess, because you have more people in there. But at least some of the things that I've seen is we have a lot of people in checking on the patient, but nobody really minding. The trends, whether the patient's getting better, whether the patient's getting worse. And I can count um, a few cases where I think that's occurred. We had good, smart, talented, caring doctors and nurses in taking care of the patient and they're documenting just fine, but they're not documenting that something is colder or, you know, I mean, they may say the leg is cold, but they're not saying it's colder than it was 12 hours ago or it blew. You know, they've, they've checked that it's blue, but they're not noting it's bluer than it was. And so I think anything you can show in your medical record that talks about your thought processes, what you're worried about, what you how you've acted on it. You know, if you spot a lab result that you think is maybe okay, maybe not, I think it's really smart to document that. You know, I'm, I'm watching um, the patient's white blood count. You know, it's a little bit elevated today. We're going to do this, this, and this and see how it goes. That's smart because you're showing what you're thinking. You're showing you're paying attention. And there's a reason for your action. Whereas if you don't document any of that and something goes wrong, then it just looks like you're not recognizing it, if that makes any sense. And so, you know, when you're doing your notes, I would give attention to what are your concerns right now? Why are you? taking the actions that you're taking, and what's your plan for that tomorrow or the next day. Those are the things that make a difference in medical charting. A short narrative note is a diamond in a medical malpractice case. I mean, that will, that trumps every drop-down box on an EMR that there is, and so those are really important.
1: I did have something regarding documentation that I was curious about. You know, we have in our hospital systems like incident reports where anybody can file an incident report on any member of the team, whether it be phlebotomy or, um, you know, pathology to whatever. How do those sorts of things play into these uh, lawsuits like are they admissible evidence to something or is it just kind of hearsay because it's one person's opinion when they've written an incident report
2: that's a really good question so there's you know it's so important that we correct things when they're going wrong right I mean we want if somebody's not doing something right we want to address it but the only way people are going to report a problem is if it's a non-punitive situation. Because we all know, you know, if you, if you don't, nobody's going to report it. Um, so for the safety of patients, it's really important that you fill out those incident reports. What those have to go on a separate track, basically. So what happens is whenever somebody asks me how you document an error, here's, here's the advice that I give them. You write the information truthfully in the patient's chart and you tell the patient what happened. So for example, you know, Ms. Smith, you know, we had an injury to your bowel during the surgery, but we caught it. It's been repaired. We're going to keep you in the hospital with some antibiotics for the next couple of days just to make sure everything goes okay. And then you're going to put that in the chart too, factually, no opinions, no, um, pointing fingers, anything like that. You know, you're not going to say the other guy did this. (laughs) I was was standing back when it all happened. You know, you just document very truthfully what happened in the chart. And then if you have a criticism of someone's performance, if you think that this happened because they made a mistake and not just that it happened, um, then that needs to go not in the patient's chart, but in your incident report or your quality review, whatever you call it in your hospital, that needs to go in a separate place. And so what you do in those, you fill out the incident report or whatever it's called, and that kind of takes a separate path. It doesn't go in the patient's chart. Every now and then somebody will put it in the patient's chart and it's, it's just evidence like everything else. But if you follow the quality assurance path that your state has set out It will go to the risk department, you know, and then you can have a quality review, you can have a peer review or whatever needs to be done to correct that problem off to the side. When it's handled appropriately, those documents are privileged and they never come up at court. Now, the same information can come out, obviously, because, you know, we're going to have experts on both sides and so they're going to give their opinion But the report itself, the opinions of the people standing around, those are going to go to quality and they will not come up in the lawsuit.
0: Well, Michelle, that that was a really informative uh, time you spent with us. I, I think I learned a lot about how this works. I'm definitely going to tell a lot of my you know, co-residents and, and new staff that, who haven't been through this process yet to to take a listen. Now, there might be, have some listeners out there that have some questions. Um, I don't know if you're you're willing to maybe if they reach out to you to um, uh, you know answer any of those, if, or if they want to contact you for other reasons. But uh, is there a good email address that we can we can put out for you? We can put it in our show notes too, or do you have some other way of contacting you that would be better?
2: Sure. Email's great. Um, you can't make fun of it, though. It's M-A-T-O-R. It's Mater at fridayfirm.com.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Sounds, uh, yeah, no No worries. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes, too, So, uh, and then uh, link to uh, wherever that else can find you, too. So uh, we do appreciate your time, though. Thank you for so much for coming on Behind the Knife.
2: Very happy to. I love working with doctors. It's a it's a great law practice, so I'm really happy to help wherever I can. Until next time, dominate the day.